Welcome to this week's podcast from the Equipping Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. Oh, Nehemiah chapter 10. Huh. I was going to skip verses 1 through 27, but I feel like I'm supposed to honor these people. I don't even know them. Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malchijah, Hadashabaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Barak, Meshalon, Abijah, Mijaman, Mijaman, Maziah, Belgash, Shemaiah. These were the priests. You know, if their names are in here, it's important, apparently. And Levite, the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the son of Hinadad, Cadmiel, also their brother, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kaleida, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabai, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Banna, Benanu. The leaders of the people, Parash, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunai, Azgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvi. That's a fun name. <clears throat> Adin, Atter, Hezekiah, Azar, Hodai, Hashem, Bezai, Heref, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshalem, Hezir, Meshabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Aniah, Hoshiah, Hananiah, Hashab, Halohesh, Pilhash, Shobek, Rehem, Hashbinah, Masia, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, Bana. Hallelujah. All of these people signed the covenant that the children of Israel made with God at this time. Before we get into the rest, I heard about this man who bought a parrot. It was a really beautiful parrot. This parrot had a bad mouth. He could swear for five minutes straight without repeating himself. The man was embarrassed because the bird was driving him crazy in front of people. He tried to appeal to the bird by asking him to clean up his language. The parrot promised to change, but nothing happened. In fact, his swearing increased in both volume and frequency. It finally got too much, so the guy grabbed the bird by the throat, started shaking him, and yelled, Quit it! But this just made the parrot angry, and he swore more than ever. Whew, I'm drunk. Then the guy got really mad and locked him in the kitchen cabinet. That really aggravated the bird, and he started clawing and scratching and making all kinds of racket. When the guy finally let him out, the parrot let loose with a stream of swear words that would make a sailor blush. At that point, the guy was so ticked off that he threw him in the freezer. For the first few seconds, the bird squawked and screamed and thrashed around, and then there was silence. First, the guy waited. Then he started to wonder if the bird had been hurt. After a couple minutes of not hearing anything, he was so worried that he opened the freezer door. The bird calmly climbed onto the man's outstretched arm and said, I'm really sorry about all the trouble I've been giving you. I make a solemn promise and vow to clean up my language from now on. The man was astounded. He couldn't believe the transformation that had come over the parrot as a result of being in the freezer for only a couple minutes. The parrot then turned to the man and said, I just have one question. What did the chicken do? like a bird that flew right over your heads. I said I'm talking about giving this morning, but really I'm talking about making investments that last. And I want to talk about making vows. This morning we're going to learn about four vows or promises that the people of God made in Nehemiah 
chapter 10. We'll tackle these in part two of the message a little bit later. I want to establish some things first. You know, while God's people weren't thrown in the freezer per se, they had definitely experienced the chastisement of the Lord in verses 8 and 9. They had heard what God wanted for them, and they owned their persistent rebellion. And in verse 8 of chapter 9, it says that the people made a binding agreement. They made a covenant before the Lord. They put it in writing and they sealed it. And I read those names to you. But it goes on in verse 28, and we'll get to that in just a minute. There was a law established in Numbers 30, verse 2. And Amber, if you'll pull that up, I want to read that. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to put himself under a binding obligation, he shall not break his word. He shall act in accordance with everything that comes out of his mouth. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, says this, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. Since an oath involved the name and possible judgment of God, it wasn't to be taken lightly. They really understood that this covenant they were making before God was huge. Jesus warned us about empty oaths in Matthew 5, 33 and 37. I'm not reading that one this morning. The Bible contains many examples of people making vows and covenants with God, only to break them later. In Mark 14, 29, Peter promises Jesus, Even if all fall away, I will not. But of course, what happens in verse 71? He says this, But he began to curse and curse himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. That leads us to a question. Are vows of any use today? I think there are at least two reasons. Number one, vows help us focus. When we make vows or we make commitments, we can say, Lord, I, we can say things like, Lord, I need to witness more. We can just say these words, right? I need to witness more, Lord. Or we can say, Lord, this week I'm going to do ABC. I'm going to take a card to my hairdresser or I'm going to hand a card to the postman when he comes by or I was going to say milkman. We don't have milkman anymore. <laughs> I'm in a different world this morning. Jesus. Second, vows allow us to express our love. That's why couples make vows during a marriage ceremony. They're the language of love. Love is more than just a feeling. It's a commitment or promise to be married until death does us part. God is a covenant-keeping God. Even when we don't keep our end of the deal, He keeps His part of the deal. You may have made some vows to God in the past that you haven't kept. You may have broken some vows. If you have, you're not alone. Jeremiah 31.32 says that God's people broke the covenant on a regular basis. Verse 33 says that He will one day make a new covenant in which He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Mark 14.24, Jesus inaugurated this new covenant. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. You know, I think there's so much to be said about this, but I want to talk about four vows that the people made to God. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 28 of Nehemiah chapter 10. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, 
their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servants, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinances and His statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring their wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, <clears throat> for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests and the Levites and the people so that they might bring it to the house of God. According to our Father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. And bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks as is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the storehouse of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. The first vow that the children of Israel made was a submission to God's word. Vow number one, submission to God's word. As a result of hearing God's word, they'd heard in chapter 8 and chapter 9 the incredible reading. They sang the jubilant praise and they sang the dirge. And, and there was this word that was manifesting on the inside of them. There was a, the word had come alive to them. It was living. It was breathing. It was active. It was transforming. It was changing them. And they vowed that they would submit to God's word. And that's vow number one. Submission to God's word. They were totally serious in their desire to devote themselves to everything that is spelled out in the Bible. This week, so last Sunday was our, our seven-year anniversary of being pastors here. And so we, we celebrate being here for seven years. And so this week as I was preparing my message, I was just curious to go back because I keep a copy of every message that I've ever preached, have them in binders, and I wanted to go back and read my very first message that I ever preached as pastor of this house. It was July 4th, 2014. Uh, it was so terrible. Pastor Anna sat on the front row and cried the whole service. It was rough, y'all. But I said this, and, and I think this is really good, and I think it bears repeating today. Who does God use to make an impact? Super saints, heroes, pious religious people. No. Listen to the words of 1 Chronicles 16.9. 
For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Wow. That's definitely not the right one up there. I don't know what this one is then. Anyways, whatever scripture that is. See, it was so bad I had the, bat, the wrong reference. The key is devotion. We need to remember that the depth of our devotion determines our impact. God is not looking all over the earth for strong people, for great people, for perfect people, or even religious people. This morning, as he scans the congregation at Living Word Worship Center, that was our name then, he's looking for devoted disciples, for men and women, boys and girls who are fully committed to him. He's looking for a regular person who he can pour his strength out on. In order for that to happen, we need to be completely committed and dangerously devoted. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was one at, once asked what his secret was to his incredible ministry. This is what he said. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, but from the day I got to the poor of London, I'm sorry, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart, and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day, I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth that there was. In Nehemiah 10, the people are saying that they are so seriously submitted to God and His Word that they are willing for the, for the curses of God to fall on them if they do not carefully obey what He says. I wonder if we have that same submission and dangerous devotion today question is, does God have all of you? Vow number two, separation from the world. After submitting themselves to God and his word, the believers make a second vow to be separate from the world. Verses 28 and 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When you think about it, separation is simply total devotion to God. No matter what the cost, when a man and a woman get married, they separate themselves from all other possible mates and give themselves completely to each other. We separate from others to the one who is our life mate. The Israelites separated from the peoples around them and to God and his word. This was not about ethnic pride or a sense that the Israelite gene pool was superior to the other peoples. Rather, it had to do with how they worshiped God and honored him. Wrong relationships can nullify a believer's distinctive witness. God wanted his followers to be a missionary people, and so it was vital that their message was not corrupted. In declaring this prohibition, the Lord was concerned about both the purity of their faith and the holiness of their lives. They'd been entrusted with the most wonderful message in the world, and nothing was to be allowed to corrupt it. There were at least two reasons why marriages with pagans were disastrous. First, there were clear biblical warnings. When the two people in the ancient world made a marriage agreement, they normally confirmed their agreement in the presence of their gods and gave each other's idols as a prominent place in their homes. So when there was a marriage between pagan peoples, the gods from the husband's home and the gods from the wife's home would be intermingled and put up on a wall that they could worship their gods together. So there was this whole idolatry that would take place. Joshua 23, 13 
says that heathen spouses would become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes. What, what a warning. If you marry a heathen, they're going to pluck out your eyes and whip you. <laughs> that was perfect. Secondly, there was an abundant historical evidence that unequally yoked marriages led to a decline in Israel's spiritual and moral life. Nehemiah 13.26 asks the questions, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king liked him, like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. We are more influenced by other people than I think most of us care to admit. Mixed marriages, talk, not talking about race, talking about believer and unbeliever. After I wrote that, I thought, I should change that language. Let me be clear to Facebook. I am talking about unequally yoked marriages. We're a danger then and they're a danger now. God's concern is that when a believer marries a non-believer, the stage is set for conflict, compromise, and at times outright conformity. I don't know how many marriages I can think of where a believer said, well, I'm going to win them to the Lord. Missionary dating. No. Rarely does it work out. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says this, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Let me be clear. Some may be married to an unsaved spouse. I respect and applaud your commitment to Christ and your determination to live out 1 Peter 3.2. Your godly lives will speak to them better than any words. They will be won over by watching your pure godly behavior. Now, I think most of you are married this morning. But if you're not, if you're not married, let me tell you, I don't care what their Insta is. I don't care what their clout is. I don't care what they're drip like. I'm speaking to the younger ones on this side of the room. If they aren't radically in love with Jesus, it's a no. Because it will lead to all sorts of failure. It will. The question is not will this relationship work out. It's will this relationship enjoy God's best blessing and fulfill God's will. So to our younger audience and our unmarried and those watching by live stream, if they don't love Jesus more than you, say bye. I don't care how great their profile is. Swipe left. Vow number three, Sabbath for God's people. After pledging themselves to submit to the word of God and to live separated lives, the believers renew the covenant with a third vow. Verse 31 says this, And as for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Another translation says, we will cancel all debts. 
In Nehemiah's time, it was necessary for God's law about the Sabbath to be clearly understood. First of all, this day was set aside to honor God. It was distinctive from other days and given to God so that they might offer their worship to Him without being distracted by the demands of everyday life. Secondly, it was a day of rest. Let me tell you that relaxation is a vital ingredient in effective living. Having moments of rest are key to successful living. God set this pattern for this in Exodus 20.11. He rested on the seventh day. The Israelites worked with no breaks in their weekly schedule when they were slaves in Egypt. God did not want this to ever be repeated again. One man challenged another to an all-day wood chopping contest. Challenger worked very hard, stopping only for a brief lunch break. The other man ate a leisurely lunch, took several breaks throughout the day. At the end of the day, the challenger was surprised and annoyed to find that the other guy had chopped a whole lot more wood than he had. He said, I don't get it. Every time I checked, you were taking a rest, yet you chopped more than I did. To which the winning woodsman responded, you didn't notice. I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest. You let yours dull away. If you're feeling a bit dull today, perhaps you need to schedule some rest into your schedule so that you can get sharp again. Thirdly, it was a day to help others. Israelite employees had a compulsory rest day automatically written into their employment contracts. This helped others enjoy the blessings of rest. And fourthly, the Sabbath was a day to declare truth. It was a silent witness to God's supremacy and gave the Israelites multiple witnessing opportunities. To their unbelieving neighbors, it proclaimed in a very practical terms that the truth of God came first. This is an important paradigm or model for us today. From the very beginning of the church, Christians made the Lord's Day their appointed day for worship, rest, service, and witness. While avoiding the legalism that the Pharisees fell into, most of us can do a better job for looking for ways to rest, especially on the Sabbath. The Israelites also promised to observe the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, they were to let the land lie idle so that it might restore itself. We definitely don't do this in our culture today. We work the land till it is dry and bare and there is nothing left in it. To obey God in this way, they certainly needed to trust Him with their needs during the seventh year. It seems to me that obedience to God always involves trust. We cannot always see what's coming up, but if we are doing what God says, He will never disappoint us. Their commitment to commemorate the sabbatical year was a great step of faith. I love what Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. Notice that they canceled all the debts in verse 31. They promised that every seven years they would live out a renewed scale of values that people matter more than money. The keeping of the Sabbath and sabbatical years were ways of saying no to a life of maximum acquisition. My highest goal is not to make the most I can and then spend my life to keep everything that I have. I think we see that way too often in our culture. We see people who will work themselves to death to make as much money as they can, and then they spend what little of their life they have left trying to hold on to it. They live miserable, sad lives. And then we get to vow number four, support for God's work. That leads to their fourth pledge, 
Support for God's work. We read that in verses 32 through 39. The phrase house of our God is used nine times in this section and refers to the restored temple. The people were promising to follow God's priorities by submitting to him, by separating from the world, by keeping the Sabbath, and by supporting the work of God. Verse 39, the way it ends, ends with this. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. Temple in Jerusalem stood the heart of the country's religious, moral, and spiritual life. In symbolic terms, it proclaimed the presence and power of God among his people and the centrality of spiritual matters. This passage covers an impressive series of promises to support God's work in a variety of different ways. And I believe it gives us seven insights into how our giving can support God's work today. This is where we get into giving. Number one, it was responsible. Look at verse 32 and verse 35 where the people say that they assume the responsibility. They owned it. And what they owned, I'm sorry, they owned it and gave what they owned because they saw it as their privilege and responsibility. It was responsible giving. Number two, it was obedient giving. We're called to live lives of obedient giving. They didn't practice impulse giving, but instead gave as an expression of practical obedience. The Bible says those who love him will do what he says. They were carrying out the commands to give, and it was written in the law. God had been good to his people, and generosity was expected from them. There was nothing remotely optional about the support of God's work. Anna and I decided years ago we would be obedient in our giving, and we have seen God be faithful time and time again. Now, I'm going to talk about the dangers of tithing in just a few minutes, but obedient giving. We've watched God be faithful, but we had to be obedient. Everyone was required to give in one form or another. This was yet another way to demonstrate that God came first in their lives. Number three, it was systematic. There was nothing haphazard about their giving. Verse 32 says that they were to bring a third of a silver shekel every year. Verse 34 states that lots were to be drawn to determine when families were to bring a contribution of wood of the year. Verse 35 tells us that the first fruits were brought each year. There was an orderliness about these offerings and a system that followed. The people knew precisely what was expected of them. The New, Test- the New Testament teaches systematic giving as well. 1 Corinthians 16 2. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. They were, they were not only responsible, they were not only obedient, but they were systematic. They figured out a way to meet the needs of the house of God. Number four, it was proportionate. The reference to the wood offering suggests that many many poor people in Israel had an opportunity to make a gift to the Lord that would demand time rather than money. See, giving isn't just about money. It's about a lifestyle. It was proportionate. I love the scripture where the widow brought her might, and that was way more than what the men who had brought huge offerings had brought. Because it was proportionate, not just to what they had in their bank account, but to their faith. See, our giving is proportionate to our faith. Everyone, regardless of income, could gather wood and take it to the temple. In addition, Israel's 
sacrificial system recognized that not everyone could make the same kind of offering. If someone could not afford the cost of a young bull, a male goat, or a lamb, they were able instead to offer two, young, two doves or young pigeons. If they could not even afford that, Leviticus 5.11 said you could bring a cup of flour because it wasn't about what you brought. It was about the heart behind what you were bringing. It was proportionate. We should give in proportion to how we've been blessed. The New Testament echoes this principle. You could write down 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Number five, it was sacrificial. They were to bring to God's house the first fruits of their crops and of every fruit tree. To offer the first of their crops was to declare that God was the giver of all things, that everything belongs to him, and that he is worthy of the best that we can offer him. Here's a helpful principle to remember. While not everyone can give the same amount, everyone can make the same sacrifice. Not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. Mother Teresa said this, If you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. And C.S. Lewis put it this way, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Sacrificial. Number six, it was comprehensive. They were not only to bring their crops and their money, they were to also bring their firstborn sons and their animals to the Lord. In verse 36, God is not just interested in our money. He wants our heart. Actually, he wants our everything. He wants all of us. He wants every part of us. And then number seven, it was prescribed. They were not only to bring their first, but also a tithe of their crops to the Lord in verse 37. Giving a tenth of their produce or income to the Lord has a long and dignified history among believers. And it's an appropriate guide for Christian giving. As someone has said, the tithe is a great place to start. I'm convinced that the tithe is the minimum we should be giving to further the Lord's work. That's how we live. It's the minimum. But listen, tithing can be a great blessing, but there are dangers in tithing. There's three dangers. They're going to come up on the screen. The first one, it's easy to give with the wrong motives. We can give out of a sense of fear or even greed. If I tithe, God must prosper me. I used to live under that idea that tithing was my access way to the blessing of God. Now, that, that, that's a prosperity mindset. Tithing is a good principle for giving. Tithing is a good place to start, but ultimately everything belongs to God. Number two, thinking that we can do whatever we want with the 90% that remains. Thinking, well, I gave God what was His. He owns everything. Your 10% of your paycheck, that's not, that's not God's. 100% of your paycheck is God's. And when we live from a mentality, well, if I give God my 10%, I can just go do whatever I want with this 90, and I don't need to worry about it because I'm a tither. I used to live from that mentality. I, we used to be part of a movement, and there was a guy in the movement, he says, if you're a tither, that rock will skip the non-tither, or it will skip your car and hit the non-tither's windshield. I mean, there were these weird, convoluted promises attached to tithing that we don't find in Scripture. So one Sunday, on our way home from church, 
where we were tithers, a rock hit our windshield. And I went to him and I said, you can't say that anymore. We're tithers and a rock hit our windshield. Because we, we live from this weird prosperity gospel mentality. Number three, giving only the tithe and failing to give love offerings to the Lord. Like Mother Teresa said, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. I've heard people say, well, I don't need my 10%. I just need the 90%. That 10% is the Lord's. No, all of it's his. I need him to be in charge of all of it. Because when I let him dictate and when I let him lead me in my giving, he provides way better than I ever could. I was sharing a testimony with a few people before service, and I want to share it. Uh, When we first moved here in 2014, we were really tied on money. Our salary here at the church was $1,400 a month. And uh, we obviously, and uh, we had all sorts of things. And we had, uh, and if I, Pastor Annie, you'll have to give me a thumbs up if I'm remembering the timeline correctly. Um, we had a guest ministry coming into town, and we were short on everything. And we were like, God, we don't know how we're going to do this. And I had a dream, and in the dream, I, is, this, is this correct? I need a thumbs up. Okay, because I can't see if you're shaking your head or not. So I had a dream, and in the dream, I pulled up to what used to be Village Foods on Briarcrest. Now it's Aldi's in, in Urban Air. And I pulled up in the dream next to this gray Buick, and I got out of my car, and in the car next to me, this taller man got out of his car, and he said, are you the pastor? And I woke up, and I knew I needed to get to Village Foods. I knew I needed to drive across town. Yes. We didn't have money for anything we needed. And so I'd said to Anna, write a list the night before. Write a list of everything we need, and we're going to believe God for it. And it was a step of faith. Thick, like She was specific. I don't want just the stringy bacon. I want thick sliced bacon. And so we had written out this list in faith. And so I had this dream. And so that morning I said, where's your list? I took her list, and I got in my car. And I drove over to Village Foods, and as I pulled into Village Foods, there sitting in the parking lot was the gray Buick from my dream. Pulled up next to that gray Buick. I got out of my car, and just like it happened in the dream, I still get goosebumps and almost cry when I think about this. Out stepped this taller man. He looked at me and said, are you the pastor? I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, I've driven all the way from Houston because the Lord woke me up this morning and said to drive to Bryan and meet, meet the pastor at Village Foods and buy him whatever he needed today. And that, I think it was like $1,800 and stuff. I mean, we went to three different stores. He bought everything on the list and more. I don't say this because we were tithers. It had nothing to do with being a tither. It had everything to do with being obedient. It had everything to do with being obedient because we would sacrifice and we would be faithful with 100% of our money and asking God, how do we handle our finances? How do we trust you? And that's what we've done here as a church. We, we give way more than 10% of the income that comes into this church because we know that if we're faithful with what God has given us, He'll be faithful with us. And so that, that turned into a two-year relationship with that man where he ended up, and, and all glory to God, I mean, this, this is just crazy. This miracle just still astounds me. He ended up calling me a few weeks later, and he says, listen, I, I want to put you on my, on my credit card account. I'm going to give you a limit every month. Whatever you need, you just buy it. And that went for two years where he 
supported us. And I mean, there, there were times where it's like, God, we don't know how we're going to pay our bills or we don't know how we're going to buy food. And God would provide in that way. There was another time we were short on, um, I think we needed uh, uh, chuck roast to make borscht. No, this was a different, this was different. We needed it, and this is when Treasure showed up. Treasure's the one that bought the chuck roast, and this is a story about Treasure. We needed chuck roast, and so I drove over to, to Kroger, and I'm thinking, God, we have no money. There's no money in the church. We've got to make this big meal for the church tonight. How are we going to do this, God? And I got out of my car, and I was just walking towards the store, no money in my pocket, thinking, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. But I'm going to step out in faith. And this black woman comes over to me and she says, hey, honey, I'm going to take you in and buy what you need. I said, "Okay." She says, my name is Treasure. So we went in and bought the things that we needed. We checked out, got out to the car. I'm talking to her as we're walking to the car. I begin to unload my groceries into the trunk and I turned around and Treasure was gone. It was supernatural. An angel had showed up and bought what we needed that day. The dangers of tithing is that we can think it's a formula. The benefits of surrendering everything to God in our giving are innumerable. You can't measure it because there is no formula. Someone has said that we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's determine to be like the believers in Nehemiah 10, 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. When it comes to giving, we can do it for three reasons. Next slide. We can do it because we have to. That's the law. We can live out of the law. But here's the deal. People who say, you just live by tithing. When you read everything associated with Malachi 3.10, you open yourselves up to curses and you rob yourselves from blessing by making that just your standard. If you really read in context, those who say, I only tithe, I'm a tither, you are binding yourself to Old Testament law. We have been freed from that. I believe tithing is a good place to start, but everything belongs to God. And so when we, when we live by the law because we have to, we bind ourselves to everything that's encapsulated in the law. But Jesus came to set us free from that. When we give because we ought to, that's out of obligation. But the Bible says that he looks for a cheerful giver. Those who joyfully, I get excited about giving. I'm thrilled when we get to give because I'm like, man, this is exciting to see God take care of what he's going to take care of. It's exciting to see God provide. I'll be real transparent. The last two months here at the church, we have been super tight financially. It's been like miracle after miracle. Okay, God, how are you going to do it this week? Okay, God, here's another opportunity for a miracle. He does it. We've never gotten to zero in the bank account because he's faithful. We've gotten close. $57 at one point. But here's the third one. We, we give because we want to. And that's grace. I don't know about you, but I love to give to the Lord. I came across a list of 10 reasons to give to the Lord's work. It's from a book by Brian Cluth. Now, Pastor Hector is getting ready to bring, uh, publish a book 
on, on kingdom finances. Brilliant. I wrote the forward for it. And I turn down forwards all the time because most of the stuff is just fluff. But what Pastor Hector wrote is brilliant. And I, I don't think these are in his book. And typically I shy away from all the giving books because they're all the same thing. But I really liked what this said. Number one, it's a tried and true pattern of giving. Number two, it will help you revere God more in your life. Number three, giving helps you harness the dragon of materialism. Number four, it will serve as a practical reminder that God is the owner of everything. Number five, it will allow you to experience God's provisions in incredible ways. Number six, it will encourage you to trust in God. Number seven, it will ensure you have treasure in heaven. Number eight, it will strengthen the ministry and outreach of our local church. Number nine, it will support church staff and missionaries. Number 10, it will help accomplish needed building projects. How many of you remember uh, when the Singapore Airlines jumbo jet crashed on takeoff? Any of you remember that? It killed 81 people. Investigators determined that the jet was on the wrong runway when it was to leave for Los Angeles. The pilot realized at the last moment that he was on a strip closed for repairs and he plowed into heavy construction equipment. Seconds before the jetliner crashed, caught fire, and broke into three sections, the pilot swore and screamed out, something there. Apparently, the pilot knew what runway he was supposed to be on and was not misdirected by the control tower. However, the officials admitted there was no barrier set up to block planes from going onto the closed runway. In addition, the lights on the runway, which should have been turned off, were turned on because of bad weather. I'm wondering this morning if there's anyone here on the wrong runway. might look like everything's going okay in your life, but you might actually be headed for a crash. The Bible's clear. If you do things your own way, you're going to have a collision. And God wants you and me to make investments that last by these four things. Number one, submitting to God. That answers the question, who's the pilot of your life? Number two, separating from the world. That covers who we spend our time with. We should be spending time with those who are in the world, but they shouldn't be our primary time. We shouldn't be fellowshipping with unbelievers as our primary place of fellowship. We should be fellowshipping with those who can encourage us. Is my mic still on? Because I've lost all sound up here. Number three. Oh, it's back. Practicing a Sabbath rest. That deals with how we spend our time. Giving's not just about money, it's about our time. And number four, supporting God's work, which involves how we spend our money. If you're submitted to God and He has all of you, then you're cleared for takeoff in your relationships, your time, and your finances. As I close this morning, here's another way to look at it. If you could look at a person's friendships, their calendar, and their checkbook, you could determine whether they're fully submitted to God and completely committed to His cause. This morning, we're going to receive our tithes and offerings. We're going to give at the end of the service today. And I want you to pray with me over our finances for both you as the individual and for our church this morning. I want us to fulfill every plan God has for us. And I believe part of that starts with our giving. I believe, and God has spoken this to me many times, 
that he's already provided within the house. So I'm not appealing to you because we're short this morning. I'm appealing to you because I want you to increase your faith. I want us to increase our faith this morning on giving because I believe God will meet all of our needs. It is not your money that provides. I want to make that clear. God is the one who provides for this house. He's the provider. I've, I've spoken on giving this morning, not because I'm trying to manipulate you into giving this morning. It's because we all need to be reminded of the principles that we should live by. Pastor Hector does a brilliant job every week sharing with us, but the Lord actually chastised me, gave me a good rebuke. I said, Lord, why are these things happening the way they are? And he says, because you've not taught the people on giving. I said, it's not my fault. He said, it absolutely is. And until you do it, I'm going to hold back blessing. So I want to repent this morning as your pastor that I've not taken time as pastor to teach on these principles. I believe that God's going to meet all of our needs. He's going to provide in ways that we could never. And I want to say you're a very giving body of believers. And I want to honor this house for your sacrifice, for your continual support of the vision. After we receive the offering, I want to open the altars for ministry. If you need healing in your body, a miracle in your finances, or whatever your need is, I want you to come forward after we give this morning. Perhaps this morning you're struggling with trusting God with your finances. And I want to pray with you and for you. God is more than able to meet all of our needs. He's faithful. So this morning, it's not about money. This morning, it's about faith. Will you join me in faith this morning that we will see an increase? We will see God provide? We're going to pray over the offering in just a moment. As a reminder, multiple ways to give. You give online like we do. This morning, I want you to take, if it's your, we're not giving just yet. We're not giving just yet. Not just yet. I want you to take your offering in your hand. If you give with your phone, if you give online, take your phone in your hand. We're going to pray this morning. <clears throat> God, you are faithful. And I thank you this morning for every seed that has come into this house. This morning, I humble myself before you. And Father, we repent for times that we took seed and ate it. And Father, we repent for times that we took bread and tried to sow it. Father, I thank you this morning that you have been faithful to meet all the needs of this house. And Father, I pronounce blessing over every person who is part of this house. I thank you, Lord, that you go above and beyond what we could ever ask, think, or imagine. And this morning I pray that you would multiply every seed sown, not only in this house, but in the houses of everyone connected to this place, God. I thank you, Father, for supernatural provision. I thank you for supernatural miracles. Open doors of favor new jobs and better jobs. Father, I thank you this morning for checks in the mail. I thank you for unusual miracles. Father, we dedicate our offering. We thank you for providing as we give this in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook, or visit www.equippingcenter.us.